to the cycle. Friends, as you guys know, I've been on Odyssey the last couple of years. Uh, American democracy has run into some roadblocks and some pressure points. I have been really interested in how democracies die. And I've been doing an independent study the last two years, particularly looking at the rise of the Third Reich, looking for to feel better, frankly. You know, I mean, I think Nazi Germany is kind of the pinnacle of evil. And I wanted to feel better about the status of American democracy because I wanted to go in and find out what it was about their system that made it so susceptible to collapsing into a totalitarian fascist regime. Instead, I felt worse. And so today I'm here and I've brought on a very special guest to talk about what some of that research uncovers. How exactly did the Nazis rise to power? Once they had power, how did they consolidate it? And to do that, we need a real expert, not a fake one, okay? I have a PhD in political science, campaigns and elections and political behavior. And as you know, I'm pretty dogged on a journalist playing political scientist on TV. So I figured we better reach out and get a real academic expert, somebody who's got a distinguished research history on this topic. And that's why I've brought in Benjamin Hett, who is a uh, Hunter College professor of history. He's also teaches at the Graduate Center in the City University of New York. He has several books on Nazi Germany, but the most recent and I think the most relevant here is Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power and the Fall of the Weimar Republic. And that literally makes him the perfect person to talk today about what happened in Germany in the 20s and 30s. And so to start that conversation off, let's say hi to Benjamin Hett and thank him for coming on to the cycle. Hi, Benjamin. Well, hi, I'm really delighted to be with you. It is such a privilege for me to have an academic of your prestige and research agenda to come and talk to my audience today about democracies and how they fall. And uh, today I want to keep really focused on, on, on the beginning of this story. And I think it's a story that people don't know. I know I didn't know. I uh, went through high school, <laughs> college, um, all the way through a PhD. And although I learned some things about World War II and the Holocaust, I knew virtually nothing when I started my independent study. And as I started to do that, I thought this is the most important story that's never been told. I mean, it's been told in books, right? But not to general lay people. And so if you could just briefly start us off, tell us the parable of how the Nazis went from you know the 1920s, 1930s, and got in a position we can stop and and you know once they seize power but how did they exactly convince the german electorate and and um, create a coalition that allowed the, them to put in, put to put themselves in a position to seize total power so let me start i think we need to sort of preface the discussion perhaps by just making sure that we're all on the same page on the issue of what kind of political entity Germany was in the Weimar Republic. And this, I think, makes the story, if anything, more frightening from a contemporary American standpoint, because um, as World War I came to an end at the end of 1918, there was a revolution in Germany, which resulted in the creation of a highly, highly democratic uh, political system. Um, the Germany of the Weimar Republic had a constitution, which was a model of sort of state-of-the-art political science and legal thinking about what a democratic constitution could be at the time. Um, and this very progressive political framework, which, for instance, 
did things that the U.S. Constitution has never done, like assured um, equal rights for women. It had a proportional voting system so that the outcome of elections was a perfect flow through from popular vote to seat outcome in the national uh, parliament of the Reichstag um, and various other things like that. And then over and above and around that, the Germany of the 1920s had an incredibly vibrant, innovative, creative culture. Uh, Germany was in many ways leading the world in science, in art, in architecture, in social activism of various kinds. Germany had um, the biggest gay rights movement in the 1920s by a wide margin over any other country. There are all these progressive impulses in Germany, and it's it's in that context that the Nazis rise. And I think that adds a, a particularly chilling element to the rise of the Nazis. It um, does. It does. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because, you know, I, I, I think people have this perception, you know, they hear 1930s and their eyes glaze over and, and maybe even they, I mean, my kid thinks, you know, the landline was like a dinosaur age, right? So I think there's, there's some perception that it was like pre-industrial even. I don't think a lot of people understand how modern the world was in the 1930s. So thanks well, for the- reminding us of that. Talk a little bit then about how that system, and this is why I needed a real expert on, because the cultural pressures and the globalization pressures and the progressive liberal like policy pressures paid such a big part in radicalizing the support base, right? So talk a little bit then from the very beginning of like, what happens next? They establish this democratic republic. It's it's kind of the shining you know city on the hill in terms of what you would envision. What happens? So in the first five years or so that the Republic exists, it's sort of one crisis after another. Uh, They have a kind of ongoing civil war, in a sense. There are coup attempts from left and right. Um, There's economic chaos, uh, famously uh, sort of coming to a climax in the hyperinflation of 1923, at which time the German currency, the mark, basically ceased to have any measurable value whatsoever. It was trading... Uh, at the height of it, at 4.3 trillion to the U.S. dollar in, in November and December 1923. So basically, uh, money has no value, and people are dealing with all these crises. And by the way, coming out of a war in which Germany had lost uh, nearly two million men killed in action from a population of about 65 million, uh, you know, I sometimes tell my students, if you imagine that in current U.S. terms, it would be as if we had a war now. And had 8 million soldiers killed. Imagine what that would be like for U.S. society. That's proportionately what it's like for Germany. Um, But maybe against all the odds, what's amazing about this story is that after about five years, in 1923 into 1924, everything sort of settles down for a while. The political system stabilizes. The democracy stabilizes. um, The economy starts to improve. And by 1927 or 28. Um, the economy is getting back to its pre-World War I levels of employment and, and growth and productivity and output and so on. Um, and in those years, uh, political support for basically centrist democratic parties is increasing election by election. And it's around 1927-28 that the bottom starts to fall out again. Um, and there are a couple of factors behind that, which, again, I think bring it into the zone of being kind of alarming from a, a current American standpoint. Bottom line here is, uh, and the reason why a previously really obscure fringe party called the National Socialist German Workers Party or the Nazis under an obscure guy named Adolf Hitler, the reason why they start to get political traction in the late 1920s basically comes down to, you know, one word, anti-globalization. 
that's really what the Nazis were fundamentally about. They didn't use the word back then. The, no one used the word back then. But if you look at what they were campaigning on, the issues they were stressing, and um, you sort of connect that to the kinds of people who started to vote for them and the reasons those people were voting for them, what you see is that this is what the Nazis were offering that had political traction. They were positioning themselves as a nationalist movement that could shield Germany against various kinds of international effects, economic, financial, trade, uh, even migrant flows that um, many people felt the democracy couldn't protect them from. I hope that the audience caught that because <laughs> the parallels between then and now are so extreme. Now, this is exactly right. So so as these pressures that there these political events and cultural events and changes are happening and the Nazis are beginning to exploit them, you, you know, using fear and, and uh, emotional rhetoric and and what have you. And, you know, as they're doing that. The the purpose is to to create a what do you what I think you call it a a, a victimhood culture right or a culture of victimization, and yeah. I think I want you to explain what that concept is and how they used it and I and I also want to talk um after that to kind of talk about how the Republicans rhetoric is very similarly situated in terms of inversing victimhood. Yeah, so you know one of the conclusions I've come to in the research I've done over many years is that when it comes to politics, I think the most dangerous emotion is the feeling of humiliation. Um, because if I feel that you have humiliated me, there's almost no limit to what I will do in response. That That's the thing that really provokes hatred, violence, and a sense that there's no limit on how I should strike back. And so I think it is really important to understand how many Germans felt deeply humiliated by things that had happened um, the loss of the First World War, and then the various disasters afterwards. And by the way, not all Germans. Again, the effects of the Nazis or support for the Nazis were quite concentrated in particular areas of the country and particular kinds of Germans. That's the point we can come to because there are also some interesting parallels. Um, but, uh, but to your question, um, Hitler could play on this feeling that Germans had been humiliated and that he could offer the remedy with... Um, great rhetorical skill. And it was this playing on the humiliation which sort of started to allow the Nazis to build up a following, especially in the context of a situation in which um, certain kinds of Germans felt that they were being sort of serially humiliated by the, uh, the democratic allies from World War I who had imposed the post-war peace settlement on Germany, but also from um, a certain kind of German elite, the political elite of the Weimar Republic, one of the interesting things here is there was a kind of, uh, in our terms, red state, blue state distinction in the Germany of the Weimar Republic. Um, when we think of Weimar, I think we tend to think of Berlin or images from Berlin, right? We think of some of the great artists of the time, uh, you know, the paintings of Georg Gross or people like that. We think of music from people like um, Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht, the uh, Three Penny Opera and so on. We think of the art of the Bauhaus, that kind of thing. Um, these are all Berlin images. The sort of sexual progressive uh, nature of the Weimar Republic is very much a Berlin thing. Of the 65 or so million Germans, 4 million or so of them lived in Berlin. The other, you know, 61 million weren't in Berlin. So our idea of, you know, Berlin as kind of all that's happening in Weimar is misleading. Out there in the country, there were people living in small towns and small rural communities who were very, very deeply conservative. And they hated Berlin and they hated everything they thought Berlin stood for. 
Um, they hated its relative diversity, uh, ethnically and religiously within Germany. They hated its uh, sort of liberal or left-wing values. They hated its sexual experimentation. They hated its modern art. Um, they hated its um, financial jazz. and commercial status, jazz. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right. They hated it. Berlin was the media center uh, for Germany. They hated that. I mean, Berlin and there you can pile up quotes on this endlessly from Germans outside of Berlin. They saw Berlin as as not German, as, you know, a sort of the very encapsulation of everything that they hated and everything that they felt was oppressing them and or looking down on them or sneering at them. And again, you come back to this thing that being humiliated um, is a really powerful political motivator. And a lot of people, you know, out in the you know countryside of Weimar, Germany, felt that people in Berlin were kind of snotty elitists who were looking down on them. Uh, with, you know, sort of degenerate, unchristian values and, you know, on and on and on. And, you know, again, I think, you know, I think your listeners may hear some of the echoes here of ways in which this story is a little bit timeless. I hope that they do. That's why we're having this conversation, right? <laughs> so here's the thing, right? There's, there's, there is, um, like, there's the legitimate feelings of that right this this rural urban divide which is similar to what we're facing here and it's all about being the front lines of culture and progressive change and it's very unsettling to conservatives who who really like status quo right um but when we think about that a little bit more right and we think and we and then we kind of talk through it's also a product of that latent animosity angst uh humiliation field being prodded and provoked and provoked and built and enhanced right can you talk a little bit about why hitler uh, goebbels and others in the in the nazis leadership especially in this propaganda wing were so successful at taking you know legitimate angst and then building it into something so much bigger as you call it a culture of victimhood yeah, so uh, you, you know, there, there's no doubt that many people in Germany in the 20s had plenty to complain about. You know, apart from the things we've talked about, the effects of the war and economic chaos and so on, um, what was starting to happen too in the late 20s was there was a kind of agricultural crisis, uh, largely because German farmers couldn't compete with foreign uh, grain growers, especially in America, Canada, Argentina. Um, and uh, farmers were going bankrupt and there was a lot of rural poverty, even before the Great Depression. There's a sort of agricultural depression that's spreading. And this, all of this put together is causing a lot of anger. And this was the thing the Nazis could capitalize on. Basically, Hitler had sort of one key in political rhetoric. His key was anger. Um, and his party did not do well electorally in the middle of the 1920s when things were going relatively better and at least were on an upward trend in Germany economically above all. But when things started to go south a little bit economically, initially in this kind of agricultural crisis in northern and eastern Germany around starting around 1927-28, and there's anger, anger is something he can capitalize on and he can express it. He, um, he he sets himself up as the guy who will express the anger of Germans against everything that he says is oppressing them above all the democracy of Weimar. But there's a lot of often code, sometimes not code, but sometimes code in here. Uh, and obviously the the thing everyone's going to think of here is anti-Semitism and using anti-Semitism and using Jews as a kind of scapegoat uh, and or sort of symbol of everything that Hitler and the Nazis claim is oppressing Germans. And the Nazis certainly did that. 
But there is a, a nuance here to note, and that is that basically the better they started to do in elections and the closer they got to power, the less they did, did that explicitly. Uh, and a lot of Nazi anti-Semitic positioning after, especially after about 1930 or so, was done with sort of what we would call dog whistles, right? It's done with sort of little sound bites that the audience will get. What's being said here is Jews, but they're not making it really explicit. And basically the reason here is that Hitler and Goebbels, who were very, very shrewd political tacticians, they understood that um, explicit anti-Semitism uh, was what in America we call a base issue. Really core supporters of the Nazi party were highly motivated by anti-Semitism as a kind of political ideology. But there was a sort of broad middle class strata of electors that the Nazis were trying to attract and ultimately did attract, um, who were not going to be primarily um, attracted by an explicit anti-Semitism. They had nothing against a coded anti-Semitism. They sort of didn't care one way or another, but they, they weren't going to they weren't going to be reached fundamentally by that issue. So the Nazis had to sort of couch it in other terms. So you see them talking about the ways in which Germany is financially disadvantaged in the world. It's disadvantaged in trade arrangements. Um, it's disadvantaged by all the financial arrangements that had sort of grown up around the reparations payments that Germany had to make under the Treaty of Versailles that resolved World War I. Um, and you see them sort of using code words that uh, sort of indicate that they're they're in a sense, blaming Jews for all this, but they don't say it flat out. So it's sort of speaking in two different directions. And and they have this really excellent dog whistle, right? And and that's the Bolsheviks, right? Because people right. need to understand that. And, and, and one key difference between here and there is that there was a robust communist movement. And it was a robust movement at a time period where Russia had had a revolution, had toppled into a communist empire. And so that that, that well and truly freaked out all of the West, right? Uh, almost every country. And it became a very effective um, bridge, right? A dog whistle bridge that Nazis were able to use in which they start to merge these two concepts, right? So can you talk a little bit about how Bolsheviks or communists become synonymous with Jewish people? Yeah, so um, of course the... the um... The Russian Revolution had taken place in 1917 and Lenin and what was called the Bolshevik or Communist Party had seized power in Russia um, and had set out to build a dictatorship in what after 1922 became the Soviet Union. Uh, and this, as you said, this was genuinely frightening to most Europeans. Um, you know, by the early 1930s, about 15 percent of German voters were voting for the German Communist Party. They were obviously not frightened by it. But pretty much everybody else was. The other 85% of the electorate was terrified at the prospect of uh, communism. And, and this is very important, uh, not just the Nazis in Germany, but all kinds of Europeans uh, were starting to conflate the idea of Bolshevism and Jewishness. This was empirically untrue in any place where communists were in power. Most of the, the overwhelming majority of Bolshevik leaders and party members and so on in the Soviet Union were not Jewish, and that's the same anywhere else. But as a sort of propagandistic device, the idea took hold and was very widely believed um, really across Europe and North America in the 20s and 30s. And the Nazis played always on the term Judeo-Bolshevism. This was this became sort of part of their jargon. And we're the, we're the, we're the party, they would say, we're the party that will defend you against this Judeo-Bolshevism. And so they, they sort of got conflated. 
if you sort of look ahead, this is not so much about the 20s as later. Like during the war, you see this very clearly in German Nazi rhetoric. You know, when they're fighting on the Eastern Front in the Soviet Union, they would say, where there's a Jew, there's a Bolshevik, and where there's a Bolshevik, there's a Jew. They weren't quite there in the late 20s, but that was sort of the drift of the rhetoric. Yeah, so when I found out that in my research, I I remember, you know, as Republicans began to use rhetoric around socialism over the course of the last decade, I mean, really, I think it starts in in the mid to late 2000s, but gains steam in the 2010 Tea Party wave and really becomes a staple point of their rhetorical strategy. From then on, I, I did recognize that it was troublesome, right? Uh, especially in a party that doesn't even right. have paid maternity leave, right? <laughs> for for them to be labeling the opposition party in this in this rhetorically hyperbolic way. But I didn't know this history, and once I did learn this history, I began to see how in, inherently dangerous that is, right? So for you know, to, by, by creating this um, political foil that it, it allows them to then segue into this victimhood posture. And and, the, and my interest for the audience is vict- this victimhood um, rhetorical strategy deployed by the, by the Nazis allowed them to flip the morals around, okay? So we're seeing that now. And if you hang out at all, and I must for my job, in right-wing spaces, media spaces, it's very very clear that they they feel victimized they feel humiliated this this the, the morals are always on their side they they don't they don't know they're the baddies in other words right and i want you to kind of explain to people the mechanics of how hitler did that the nazis did that in the in germany and how that ended up playing out in terms of public cooperation for what would come next Right. Well, you know, the Nazis had lots to work with. In a certain sense, they had much more to work with than Republicans in the United States do in the early 21st century, because there were ways in which lots of Germans could legitimately feel they had been victimized. Not, you know, needless to say, by some sort of Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy, but they had been victims of historical circumstances. And, you know, as we've discussed, the the misery levels in Germany were quite high. Um you know, among the things going on, uh, and one of the things that proved an asset to the Nazis was that um, there had, demographically speaking, there had been a baby boom in Germany between 1900 and 1910. So these are the young people of the 1920s. And um, in all the difficult economic conditions, life was very hard for them. It was hard to get jobs. It was hard to get apprenticeships. Uh, you know, um, there was a high unemployment level for college graduates and so on. And this also feeds into the discontent. And you imagine a young person, you know, can't get a job. And uh, I often think, and I think it's good to try and think your way into people in these situations and try and imagine how it would look to them. I often imagine being, you know, say a 20-year-old young man in 1930, and you're unemployed, and the economy is going to hell, and your country lost the biggest war in history. And then you're probably not feeling great about your life and your prospects. And then some political leader comes along and says, no, 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 it's not you. You're a hero. You're a hero simply by virtue of your German blood. You know, this is the kind of right. rhetoric. It's, it's, it's unfair, you know, it's unfair, conspiratorial, evil, nasty people who are unfairly victimizing you. And as soon as we get rid of them, all your problems will be solved. And I think that must have been an extraordinarily powerful appeal to people in that situation. I, I you know, I, um, hundreds of thousands of young men ultimately started pouring into the um, infamous Nazi stormtrooper organization, the Brown Shirts. 
And this is why I think that for, it's these young men in their 20s who have felt humiliated all their lives. And now here's this political movement saying, no, no, you're a hero. And by the way, here's a uniform. And, you know, other things that would work with young men. I was a young man a long time ago. I can kind of get this, you know. And by the way, you join this group and you've got instant buddies and you hang out and you have beer. And all you have to do is get into a fight with communists who are the devil, right? right. And the girls will like you because you got a uniform. Like all of this is going to really appeal to young men. It's a very yes, like, psychologically astute um, appeal to like unemployed, humiliated feeling young men. And it's important to, to, to note that because it's the same appeal that is packaged off of Tucker Carlson's show every night, right? <laughs> or or I, I imagine it's very much the appeal of the paramilitary groups we have now you know, like the Proud Boys and groups like that. They are a very close analogy, I think, to the Nazi brown shirts. I think so, too. I mean, they certainly don't run around uh, America with impunity, as, as you know, was the case in Nazi pre-Nazi Germany. But it is um, the antecedent, certainly, to that. And, and very similar, uh, I think, manifestation of this angst in, in, in targeted specifically to the young men. Well, as a matter of fact, the brown shirts didn't run around with impunity in pre-1933 Germany. They were often charged with violence from their various battles with communists and others and would end up in jail. But then that propagandistically, the Nazis would use it to feed their victim cult, much as the right wing media does now with January 6th people. It's like these are political prisoners of an unjust state. You know, if you're if you're a brown shirt and you you like kill a communist in a battle and you end up in prison. There's this whole Nazi or, you know, generally right wing media saying, you know, a la Tucker Carlson, you are a political prisoner of an unjust state. You should be freed. It's outrageous that you're being prosecuted for this. So there's, there's sort of echo. exactly what they're telling all of these J6 defendants and all of its exactly. uh, supporting yeah. work. Right. <laughs> exactly. so, so, all right. So, so we've talked a little bit about how the rhetoric was attractive. Talk a little bit then about. What else, like uh, other than young men, what was the Nazis' appeal to the broader gen uh, general public? Because, you know, in other episodes, folks, we're going to talk a little bit about the mechanics of institution seizing and and all of that. But today, I'm really focused on how they how they got to the gate. How did they get invited to the big party to become chancellor? So that that you know tail end election, that 1933 you know time period, where they finally become a real force in in German politics. Talk a little bit about that. So there's part of this, there's a key demographic aspect to this. And I think it's important to stress that it's not like the Nazis appealed across the board to all Germans. In fact, in free elections, um, the best the Nazis ever did was one third of the vote. So, you know, I think we need to keep that in mind that even with all the crises we've talked about, that's the best they could ever do. Um, and it's very clear sort of who those people were demographically. Um, the Nazis appealed far more to Protestants than Catholics. Uh, and just by the way, Germany at the time was about two thirds Protestant, about one third Catholic. Um, Jews were a tiny, 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 tiny minority under 1%. So basically it's Catholics and Protestants. Um, the Nazis appealed to Protestants, not so much to Catholics. Um, they appealed to middle and upper middle class voters, not to the you know industrial working class, like union workers and people like that who stayed with their traditional um, left of center parties like the Social Democrats. So the so the Nazis are basically Protestant, middle class, uh, kind of white collar constituency. Why are they voting for the Nazis? 
people in rural areas are voting for the Nazis for the reasons we discussed, that the Nazis positioned themselves effectively as champions against um, the uh, effects of basically globalization on the farm sector. Um, there's a slightly more subtle reason for um, uh, more urban middle class, you know, professional kind of people to vote for them. Partly it is, again, as we discussed, fear of the communists. And the Nazis were very astute about um, positioning themselves propagandistically as the only party that was tough enough to really save Germany from the communist threat. And it sort of worked for the Nazis in a way that the communist vote went up election by election, not as much as the Nazis, but it was rising. And right. that was frightening yeah. for middle class people. Um, and the fact that the Nazis, you know, by the early 30s were regularly engaged in street violence with basically communist paramilitary groups had an interesting effect because a lot of middle class people look at that and being sort of like respectable middle class people, they don't necessarily like the violence, but they do draw from it the lesson. But at least those Nazis, they're rough, but God love them. They're beating up the right people. You know, they're <laughs> they're they're saving us from the communists. And so that's something they had. You know, the Nazis were able to propagandistically put forward um, a vision of themselves as, you know, the one party that's tough enough to actually really take the communists on and, you know, keep the country safe. So that was a factor. Um, broader economic issues, uh, you know, that the Nazis posed effectively as champions of uh, ending the various financial limitations on Germany. This is a very complicated financial story, but all growing up around the reparations payments that Germany right. had to make. And then there were loans that were made mostly by the United States to assist Germany in paying those. And they had to set up, they created a whole new bank to facilitate these payments. And it ended up with, you know, the allied powers had kind of imposed a regulatory structure on Germany's central bank. And you know, they forced the currency to be regulated in certain ways. Um, Germany's central banker at one point said, this is an invisible occupation, this financial control of Germany by the allies. And he wasn't actually wrong about that. Right. And the Nazis positioning themselves as being against that was also effective to a, a segment of middle-class voters. And I wanted you to close out on that because I want people to understand, as you just pointed out, you know, about a third of Germany's electorate. I mean, this is a parla parliamentary system with proportional representation. So keep that in mind. Uh, voted for the Nazis in, uh, to, you know, in the parliamentary elections. But there, there is more people that brought them to the dance. Right. When you talk about the coalition. Right with the Christian, right. um, you know, uh, Democratic Christians or what it, What was the party's name? Uh, German Christians, whatever, right? It was one of the major parties. <laughs> um, anyway, when you think about that allegiance with them, that's what they needed to be brought into, you know, the executive role of, of chancellor. And, right. and I think it's important for people to understand that, as you said, as our resident expert today <laughs> said, it was about, okay, I'm maybe not comfortable with all of this crazy stuff that I'm seeing from the, you know, national socialists, but at least they're beating up the right people. And I, and yep. I'm so glad that you said that because I want folks to understand as we move through this next time, um, you know, what will be a very tense election cycle, you know, there's two problems that we have to deal with the base of the Republican party, the MAGA real true believers but it's really those people that are going to bring them to the party when they have a two-person ballot, two parties on the ballot dance that we have hope to convince they're making a tragic mistake. So thank you so much for coming on the show today and for telling us um, about how the Nazis used rhetoric and propaganda and the conditions in Weimar, um, the Weimar Republic coming out of one world war 
dealing with global depressions and other economic events, and that fostered a climate for radicalism. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you.